Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening Rod. I am very well on this hot July day. I was just trying to think of which month we were in. It's hot where I am. I was in Swansea. It's nice in Swansea. Not as hot, I don't think. We had the air show this weekend, so we had all manner of planes zipping around. I know you live near a runway, so you're probably used to this kind of stuff, but we had Spitfires and Hurricanes and Typhoons and Lancasters and the Red Arrows twice, so that was nice. Oh, cool. We are due a very big air show in about two weeks' time, I think it is, where we will have all manner of things here, because we live near the largest runway in Europe, I think. So, yeah, we're, we're going to have a lot soon, so we may have to pick when we record. Well, we need to talk about our schedules anyway, because it's holiday time coming up and we've got a bit to wangle in. Yes, and one of us is going on holiday. Very nice. Just one of us? You're not going on holiday? I suppose you've been, haven't you? I'm going in October, so we've got plenty of time. Yeah, i got a big holiday. It could be a challenge. I'm sure we'll sort something out. Anyway, it might be quiet now until the Vision OS comes out, so we may have a couple of lean weeks. Just take a couple of weeks off, nothing to talk about. I mean, our main show is definitely getting a bit thinner, that's for sure. Yeah, and I don't even know where the week's gone, so um, should we get into it? So it's episode 75, and it is the 3rd of July. It is indeed. So, straight into follow-up, you had a bit of follow-up, you were going to go off and try and use a camera, a continuity camera possibly, with your Apple TV on the Mac OS beta. On the tvOS beta. That's what I meant to say, the tvOS beta. And which I did, and it didn't really work. So I'm sat in front of the TV with my iPhone, I thought I'd use that as the camera. The message didn't pop up on there, but, but it popped up on my iPad. So you basically go into FaceTime on the Apple TV, and you go, and before you can do anything, it goes, do you want to use you know, a phone or an iPad as a camera? And then you wait for a message to pop up on them, and for me, it only happened on my iPad. So I click connect, and then it, very similar to how you use your your phone on continuity mode on the Mac and then on the screen it showed no picture on the big TV so sadly it did not work but maybe it's because it's a beta so I think I'll wait for the next one and we'll try again that's fine we need to leave it and follow up for you follow up then yep let's pick it up next week fair enough I've got some follow up as well so the first thing we had a rhetorical question a few weeks ago about what happens if you've got multiple wireless CarPlay phones enabled you didn't know what would happen on your father-in-law's car, I think it was. Yeah, that's yeah. correct, and I was too scared to try it. Yeah, so I've tried it for science with my Carpy Ride unit, which is still working very well. What you do is the last phone connected to it, it will try and connect again. So if you've got two phones paired, the last one, if you're both in the car, will go to the one that was last paired with. And if the other phone isn't there, it won't automatically try to reconnect to the phone that it was previously connected to. You have to go into the Bluetooth settings, you have to pick your device from Bluetooth, and then it just up and works again. So it's as simple as going into Bluetooth and saying connect to that, and you're off to the races again. I'm, I'm glad I didn't set it up for my in-laws, because I think that would just cause more phone calls to me. It It would definitely cause more phone calls to you, and trying to diagnose a Bluetooth menu remotely is not a fun time. No, on a car I don't know much about. So I'm, I'm glad I skipped it. Yeah, you don't need to touch the car, but you do need to touch the phone and go into the Bluetooth settings. Yeah, okay. I'm Yeah, I'm glad I've left it. I think that's all I'm going to say on that one. Well, it's good. Now I know what has to happen, really. Although the amusing thing for my family who took the van away while I went to Scotland a couple of weeks back was they didn't know how to turn it on and off, the car pure ride unit, the button sort of behind the screen on the top. So they were actually just unplugging it and walking away. So what can you do? Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. I'd imagine it'd be the same in my house. But, you know, I think it actually passed the tech test. They'd plug it in, it would find the phone, they'd get the map up on it, and off they'd go. So actually, for an additional unit in the car, it's been reasonably successful. Family friendly. 
as friendly as it gets if it's still in use and it hasn't been ripped off and thrown in a bin. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. I guess you could have gone one or two ways when you got back. Absolutely. So that was that. My second bit of tech follow-up is I had phone, po- phone pods, home pods paired to the, the LG TV on my left. It got so flaky and so bad with my Apple TV thing, I've stopped doing it. The delay on some video streaming apps was phenomenal. It just was so laggy. It was like a minute behind the audio in some cases, which is just unacceptable. They'd randomly start playing. They always wouldn't stop playing. So enough was enough, and they're now disconnected. Did you ever try the wireless sync thing you do with your phone? So you hold your phone near near the Apple TV or near, near your television, sorry, like right in the middle of the television. It even shows you where to do it. And this is a setting in settings. And then it will resync the speakers with the audio. And it actually works really well. Why should I have to? I don't disagree with that, but I need to do it on my actually wired speakers because they're out of sync with going through my amplifier. And so it, it does work just to resync it. I must say, though, the TV I've got here over my left shoulder with the HomePods actually works really well and has been amazing. I mean, it'll be a similar type of TV. It's an LG as well. It'll just be a a generation or so newer. I mean, I would say I've got Sonos attached to the bigger TV in the living room and they've never come out of sync. And I've got a Denon amplifier down in the little cinema room I've got. And other than the original setup, where I'd sit in the middle of the room and hold all the speakers while they made a microphone, while all the speakers 7.1 system made various funky noises to work out what was where. Head height, shoulder height, you know, listen on the left, listen on the right. I've never had to retune them. So it's a bit rubbish that you have to do that occasionally with HomePods. Yeah, I do agree with you. It's a bit rubbish and it is always the worry of bringing tech into the house, isn't it? So family-friendly move, they're gone. And actually, I don't know what I'm going to do with my HomePods now. I have two HomePods sort of kicking around. Hey-ho, you move, you live and you learn, don't you? Moving on, another thing I'm unhappy with. My Meros garage door opener is not working particularly well. It keeps losing the Wi-Fi. But I'm also observing increased flakiness in HomeKit in general. So I'm not running any of the betas on my Apple TVs. Occasionally, I just can't reach the lights. I can't do things at all. The garage door opener pops in and out. So I'm disinclined to blame the Meros. I am inclined to blame HomeKit for something that's drastically gone wrong ever since we had the sort of I guess it was the Matter update that I finally installed. I know it's not the light bulbs themselves. If I go into the Hue app, I can control it. I can go into the Meros app and control it. So HomeKit is just increasingly flaky and unreliable, and it's at risk of being kicked out of family friendliness at the moment. Yeah, there is something not right with HomeKit. I was blaming mine on the beta because I can't seem to turn the lights on on my phone, but my wife can on her phone. So there is something not with HomeKit, but I put mine down to being on the beta, but I don't think the upgrade has done what they said it was going to do. I think the upgrade has caused more harm than help. Yeah, because it got pretty good, I'm going to say. I'll go with pretty good. But yeah, all of a sudden we seem to be taking a few steps backwards. Yeah, nine times out of ten it'd work, whereas now I'm doing it four times out of ten it's working in HomeKit, and that's an unacceptable level of performance. Yeah, because you know if you just had a switch it would work. It certainly would, and it works in the Hue app, the Philips app, and it works in the in the. But I don't want to be going through multiple people's apps. Part of, part of having an ecosystem is all these things are meant to work together, and I'm not running betas. So what's going on? Yeah, that is an odd one, and that was the joy of HomeKit, isn't it? And what I've signed up for is I just want everything in one app. So it's for a family friendly, and it's great for me. I don't need all these other apps on my phone. I just go to one place and do everything with home automation. Mm. Rubbish. And they haven't really so announced the, anything new coming, have they? 
No, they haven't. We seem to be stuck with this. I mean, maybe we'll get some sort of update to Apple TV or what. I mean, this is the other thing I was thinking about. I have a lot of devices now that could be the HomeKit hub. I don't know which one it is. I have three Apple TVs and two HomeKits plugged in. Which one's the HomeKit hub? Yeah, I was thinking this because obviously I've upgraded the Apple TV in my shed, but not in the house. So which one's which? And does it matter that my phone's on a new OS and stuff? So yeah, I don't know what to say on this one. I mean, the joy of Apple is you're not meant to care, but it's but it ain't right. Yeah, there's something not right here. Okay, my next tech complaint is that you accused me of going through browsers like a dose of salt, so I thought I'd go back and try Safari this week on my Mac. Obviously, you have to use it on your phone and an iPad. Well, you can use other things, but it's basically Safari. So I tried to use Safari this week. I think I lasted an hour before I was back on Firefox. That's not very long. It's not a very good browser. I mean, it's it looks okay. It's very limited in functionality. There is a, I don't know if it's my fault or a one password problem that you click on any text field and it tries to prompt you to fill things in, even if it's not the right kind of field. And one password seems to get in the way of that as well, where the little one password autofill thing tries to pop down over what else is going on. No other browsers experience this. So maybe it's something I'm doing, but there's something really weird going on, an interaction between Safari, what I'm doing and all the rest of it. So that was unac- that was another thing that I found unacceptable this week. Yeah, I think I'm too wedded to Safari. I've never not used Safari in probably 10 years. That's not a good thing because you should try other browsers, but I've been in there a wee while now. So my current thing is I'm trying the de-googled Chrome, which is called Chromium. So it doesn't have any of the Google APIs for anything. You get a nightly build for it. If you're a masochist, you can go and download a new version of the browser every night and get the latest hotness for Mac if that's what you want to have. I have found that you can install it through a thing called Homebrew. I don't know if you've come across Homebrew. So Homebrew is like a it's a package manager. So you can download Linux slash Unix packages for your Mac via the terminal. And if you upgrade all, it will pull down the latest Homebrew build of Chromium. So I don't need to build it all the time. So I'm getting, I'm having a go at that. So no arc, completely de-googly-fied. And I'll, you get quite a lot of performance. And it does look like it's a Mac ARM native package based on what Homebrew pulled down. So I'm giving that a go. Okay, well, keep us posted. I will on my my continuing browser adventure. I'll probably end up back on Firefox, but it's worth a go. Yeah, it's got to be worth worth a go. Nice to try something new. Have we got any more follow-up? No, I don't believe so. I'll be honest, I don't know where the week has gone. We say that every week. Yeah, that is true. Into news? Into news. So, first story is Microsoft wants us to fully move to the cloud, which I think is a fascinating story and sort of harks back to the very early days of computing, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, it kind of reminds me of a job I had 20 years ago where everybody in the office kind of had a little pizza box and a little th- what you called a thin client back then, and you streamed you know, your session from the mainframe or server or whatever it was called. It feels like that's having another resurgence i guess but in a slightly different way so what they're saying here is that they want to increasingly make use of the cloud side of things so you'll boot your windows pc if you have one and it will swap in a cloud session as opposed to what's going on so the idea is you'll have all your apps and all your documents wherever you go with the same desktop experience maybe in a slightly different size monitor whatever and that'd be part of it but this came to light as part of a perennial favorite the microsoft the ftc versus microsoft thing about the purchase of activision and it became obvious from declarations in the hearing that they want to do this with gaming as well. So you'll be able to get, and they do this a little bit now with Xbox Games Pass, you can get Forza Horizon and all that kind of stuff streaming rather than actually running through your Xbox or through your Windows PC. So 
it's 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 given their expertise with Azure and server side of things, this isn't surprising, but it kind of makes a joke at having an i7 PC kicking around under your you know, under your desk, really. Yeah, surely you, you could just use your iPad for this, in essence, or anything. So I can get some of appeal of it of, oh, I could be on my Mac, and I could just have, you know, Windows games that aren't, don't work with the new ARM chips, and I could just be streaming them live. I don't know what the latency would be like on that. It, it's acceptable. So I was trying it on my Steam Deck, and it was acceptable. I could play a racing game. There was a tiny bit of lag you'd notice if you're used to playing it on, on the actual thing, but it's... It's fine, I think, as long as you've got fast enough internet. So are Microsoft doing this for A, the consumer, B, performance, or C, cloud subscription revenue that everybody likes? I think the third one that you mentioned there is probably the real reason they want to do it. They know they're under threat in the hardware space. Apple and Chromebooks are eating their lunch there. And yes, you still buy fancy Dell laptops and all the rest of it. But in our business, as in yours, if you can push people down onto cheaper platforms, you can just replace them easily and all the rest of it. You don't need to worry about parts, you want service, yada, yada, yada. The cheapest possible thing that will allow you to get the job done is actually what you want to put on people's desks or in their hands, yeah? Yeah, and equally, you don't have to worry about backing up all the data. You don't have to worry if it gets stolen because there'll be no data on it. Just, you know, a login in essence. Yeah, very interesting. So I think this is a good goal. Sorry, Microsoft responding to the threat of better hardware devices other people are able to make. You know, you could have a very thin client Xbox, couldn't you? You know, back to what you said a minute ago about thin clients where you could make a box for 50 quid, much similar to what Steam tried to do with their Steam, what was it called? Stream Deck thing. Steam Valve couldn't do it at that point, but Microsoft probably have the server chops to make this happen. But it really does centralize the business on Microsoft's knowledge on, on servers and 365 and Games Pass and all those kinds of things and keeps the value in the subscription revenue inside of Microsoft rather than you thinking, hang on, this i7 box under my desk, I get very little value from Microsoft because I'm not a Teams user and I can use, I can put Linux on here and I can install this stuff and, and use it the way I want to use it. And that's definitely not what Microsoft want you doing, isn't it? So I understand this push to cloud. It makes sense. Like you say, they've got all this, the skills in that space. So yeah, I'd be interested to see what this looks like. I've not heard of it taking off in the corporate space yet, but maybe that's just uh, business- the companies I've dealt with. No, I, I I agree with you. I think it, it's interesting, isn't it, that if you're an IT department, you're used to running in a state of servers and desktops and laptops and possibly iPads and other things as well. And you're quite embedded and traditional in that, that you, you know, if, if the cloud fails, which it does in all of us all the time, you can at least get some work done. You know, it doesn't stop you opening up Word and writing a document. It doesn't stop you potentially messaging inside of your business. If you run your own email server, you know, that you're not completely tethered to teams for example if that goes down it's an inconvenience but you could fire up a temporary google session or a zoom session or pick up the phone and talk to somebody while you look at your computer if you both are on your screens so uh, for me i think it's it'd be very hard to get it departments to completely go to the cloud you did you need a huge amount of trust in a company to do that and i don't think any of them apple google microsoft amazon give us a hundred percent reliability i mean half the time we're lucky to get 95 percent reliability yeah, you're right. But for us, everything's hosting the cloud. So if we just move the PCs to the cloud, it probably wouldn't actually make much odds because we can do so little when we can't connect to internet anyway in this, in this day and age. So uh, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes and curious to see what the, the cost would end up being. And that's it, isn't it? I mean, we t- I've said at the beginning of the podcast, the cost is how much does it get to get out of the deal, not to get into the deal. And they'll give you very cheap prices to begin with. But 10 years down the line, when you're paying for 
you know, whatever you pay now for your SQL Server licenses per core, not even per chip anymore on a server, if they're paying that for Azure licenses for 3,000 desktops, that's not going to be a small amount of money. No, that's true. I, I'm also interested, what's the user experience like? Will the user even know? Because we've all been there and we've connected to a remote app and it's pretty horrible. So I'd like like to see the reality of, oh, I log onto my PC, does it just log me straight into the cloud? And actually, all I've got on my actual desktop is literally nothing but a login window. That would be interesting. Have you had the... Have you had the experience of being an IT professional and you push out the latest and greatest version of Office, Windows, whatever it is that you decide to do, and half your users absolutely hate the fact the start button's moved or the icon's a different colour or they've hidden a menu that used to be there before and they will give you dog's abuse for doing so? Yep, we just did, well, we did Windows 11 last year and I thought it was going to be a, a backlash of why is the start button in the middle of the screen? We had no complaints whatsoever. I was amazed. That is amazing because uh, I think the industries I'd worked in before that wouldn't have been tolerated. I think we they changed color. I think it was I can't remember what the, in sort of the Vista days there was a sort of a light blue word became instead, and that got us abuse actually as an IT department. And I could just see Microsoft going right now you're all getting version of App X and it changing completely, and that would cause horrendous amounts of backlash. I think people are getting used to it though because Teams updates all the time and the office suite and we're not testing all those versions before they go out they often just go out to people because you can't comms all there's so many monthly updates now so i think people are getting used to minor changes and it's better if it happens little and often maybe so anyway one to keep an eye on next story is about apple in the uk and this is apple joining whatsapp and signal and others that we've talked about in the last few weeks in the podcast of protesting of the uk's new proposed online safety bill with the reduction of end-to-end -end encryption potentially posing a risk to Apple users. Is this a surprise Apple have come out and said this? No, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? They've come out with the other apps and against the UK. We, we, the UK, seem to be sticking our head above the parapet a bit lately with various tech things. I think it was us that were on the Activision deal. I read about us about the Figma deal that Adobe buying Figma and the UK of Competitions and Markets Authority are trying to stop that. Obviously, we're now sticking our heads up on this one. We, we, yeah, The UK is getting some bad tech press, I think, at the minute. Yeah, I think quite a lot of it's justified as well. I mean, it's really difficult, isn't it? We've talked on this podcast before about Apple's efforts to identify child and sexual abuse material. They had the algorithm that were trying to do that, that would run individually on your phones and, and flag that up. And that was obviously pushed back by privacy campaigners. This is a pro-privacy move, I think, supporting end-to-end -end encryption. It's obviously a major selling point for Apple that they have this sort of end-to-end -end encryption, not only in messages, but uh, in all the other uh, applications that they've uh, added it to in the last year. We both went through the process of doing this, adding trusted contacts, doing all that kind of stuff. It all increases the fact that if your phone is stolen or your computer is stolen, the most sensitive stuff should be encrypted on it. And weakening that in any way even for a government agency, as we've discussed before, is problematic. So I'm not surprised Apple, Apple have come out against this, and I agree with them. Yeah, agreed. I'm, I'm with Apple on this one. We shouldn't be breaking down the encryption on any of our devices. No-brainer. And it's odd how this one keeps coming back around. Well, you can understand from a governmental point of view that they want serious organised crimes agency, MI6, various government agencies, to be able to reach into criminals' phones to pull things out of it. And they don't understand 
I don't think they understand the technology that's involved that weakening one part of it doesn't only allow the police into it, or the, who you may not want. Let's face it, this country's the police aren't the most trustworthy agency, or the security services for that matter. Not saying the UK is one if you're listening security services, but not all countries are, and if one agency can get into it, so can the criminals, so can the blackmailers, so can the scammers. Next time they steal all your NHS records, maybe that is that last bit of detail to enable you to get into a phone on the back door that's in there as well. So it's a very slippery slope if you start going down this way. I completely agree. Moving on, a subject you and I like to come back to from time to time, talking about Apple Watch streaks and how they're unacceptable. And this was just a nice story on Stuff TV by Craig Granell, who is a retro computer games journalist I know him best as. He quite often posts stories about, here's a C64 game from the past or an early PlayStation game or something like that. And he's just talking about losing his Apple Watch streak. And I like the way he's phrased this. It should have more humanity. It should be more understanding of us as human beings, which is nothing we haven't said before, but I just think he says it quite eloquently. Yeah, and I did have a look at this because I have stopped wearing my Apple Watch for about two weeks now. And so I've lost my streaks. I was really into it. And I just thought, you know what? I don't need my watch to tell me to do 10,000 steps a day. I can do that without it. I want to wear my mechanical watch. And I don't know. I think I just quite enjoyed not not having all the alerts and taps and things. And the streaks thing is good to get you going. But I think once it's got you into the right habit, if you weren't in it, it's good for creating the habit. But once you create the habit, it's a bit of a pain. Because actually sometimes... If you're doing the habit 95% of the time, it should give you a pass, the other 5%. Yeah, it's really difficult. It doesn't account for injury or anything. At the moment, I've got a bit of an Achilles problem, so I'm not able to walk very far. So, you know, I've had visits to physios and ED departments and all manner of fun things like that. And I've lost my streak as a consequence. If you can't walk very far, you're not going to be closing your move ring, are you? So... It seems unfair that your watch is then going, come on, you didn't hit it yesterday, you can smash it today, and all the kind of stuff that it tries to encourage you to do. And it's it's not human, it's not understanding, and it you know it is demoralizing. If you had a streak of, I don't know, 500 days to pick a number at random, they'd manage to keep going, and you're hit by a car, or you know you hurt your Achilles, or you just have a, day, a couple of days of COVID in bed, that streak is gone. And your impetus to get out there and do it again is also going to be gone. So... I, I think this is right. Apple really should have thought about this. How long the Apple Watch been out now? Ten years? Yeah, it must be because we were on the 10th of us, it was nine years, actually. Yeah. Yeah, eight or nine years. But this one bit hasn't changed. This bit everybody uses it for, and they haven't really improved it at all. I'm yeah. surprised by so, it. It needs thinking about because it is a problem, and I've got no great desire to go out and build it up because it'll take me hundreds of days to get my streak back up to where it was. And... I'm almost certainly going to have a cold or something in the middle of that. So why should I bother? It's demoralizing. Yeah, it is demoralizing. Like I say, I think it's good for creating the habit. But once you're in the habit, there's then no way of getting out of it. Yeah, and then if you follow that to its logical conclusion, if you're not enjoying the streaks and you're not enjoying the watch tapping you on the wrist and you're now enjoying your nice mechanical watch again rather than your Apple Watch, should you would you even be thinking about buying the next Apple Watch when it comes along? Um assuming this year they're going to come out and I'm going to watch, but I'm not going to be in the market. Interesting. You were so happy with your Apple Watch Ultra as well. I was, and I've completely flipped. I can't explain why. Maybe it's because you lost your streak. Lost my streak, and I just wanted to wear my nice mechanical watch. And it's a pity, in a way, Apple don't do something a bit smaller, more like a bracelet, that you could use for all the tracking and the metric gathering if you still want to wear your mechanical watch. 
It's a bit they, they don't do that Fitbit-esque thing. Like, because they could even do something without a screen. Or something like a little like iPod Nano when we had the little clip-on one. You want something like that, I think. That would be quite interesting. It's not to say I still think it's a good device. I've, I very much enjoy my Apple Watch Ultra. I quite like it as a fashion thing. I quite like the fact I can track my cycles and all the rest of it. It just needs to be more understanding of human lives rather than we're all robots and you must do this all the time because it's good for you. And I think if they got that right, it would be more compelling for people. They seem to have got over the fact you don't need to upgrade your Apple Watch every year. It is evolution, not revolution. And I'm comfortable with that in the same way that my phone doesn't need to be upgraded every year. It can be every two years or even every three years. Apple should be happy with that too. They've got the subscription revenue coming off as well. Humanize things, Apple. That's all we're asking. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the Apple Watch is fantastic. I do like it, but I don't know why. I just having a moment of going back to my mechanical and I'm probably in six months from now I'll try wearing my Apple Watch again just for having having a change Fickle you Sorry? You're fickle Yeah pretty much Fair enough Moving on this is a story from The Verge about the MacBook Pro being the Mac Pro's biggest problem and I just think this is interesting that Apple now sell three desktop computers four desktop computers we've got the Mac Mini the Apple Studio the iMac and the Mac Pro and then we've got the, the portable lineup. And the, the sort of thesis of this article is that why does anybody need a Mac Pro when the MacBook Pro is actually as good a computer as anybody would need? And if you think you can have a more than capable MacBook Pro for about £1,600 and a Mac Pro starts at five and a half to £6,000, maybe even £7,000. Seven. It's an it's a absolute gulf for what you get by stepping up to that level of money. And... You, he's absolutely right. You, I don't think the app, the Mac Pro gives you anything other than a stationary computer and maybe the ability to drive a few more displays, which is a real edge case anyway, that the MacBook Pro doesn't. Yeah, the Mac Pro is such a niche device. I think that's the only way of looking at it. It's so niche. Everybody's going to buy the studio if they need the performance. But it's crazy how many desktops they do now in a world of mobile computing. They make so many desktops. I don't think I'd advise many people to buy the iMac at this point because you're probably better off getting the screen and a, and a Mac Mini, because at least then you can swap the guts out and keep the screen, you know, a year from now or something, two years from now, three years from now, whatever that number may be. So it is interesting. And I actually put in the clip of MKBHD's YouTube video about the Mac Pro, and I think he's going to get one, but he wants to put some cards in it and some storage, which is what it's for. But it's a shame they don't do a desktop. For the enthusiasts like yourself and I, maybe we do want to add some storage and bits in it, but we can only buy one that's ridiculously expensive and overpriced. Yeah, I mean, that is the interesting thing, I guess. Back in the day when you could add your own RAM, when you could add your own SSDs or hard disks as they were, and you could add in your own graphics card. This computer doesn't allow any of that. Storage, yes, but that's the only thing that it does allow. Yeah, it's a problem. It really is a problem. The Mac Studio serves most of that, but really thinking about this article, why would you, again, why would you even get the Mac Studio when the laptops are so capable? I now carry my laptop pretty much everywhere with me. I have no desire to have a desktop computer anymore. As long as I've got a big screen I can plug it into from time to time, it does everything I need to do in a computer. And I can get the same chip as is in this Mac Pro in a MacBook Pro. So in the MacBook, you can only get the Max chip, but in the Mac Pro and in the Studio, you can get the Ultra. And that's that's the reason why you'd buy it, is because you want the Ultra chip. You get that in a Studio though, right? Yeah but not in your MacBook. So your MacBook goes up to the Mac. So you've got, I think it's what, four chips. You've got the regular M2, you've got the M2 Pro, 
then you've got the M2 Max and then the M2 Ultra. The M2 Ultra is only available in the studio and in the Mac Pro. So the Mac Pro is no point buying because you get the chip in the studio. And But what you're saying though is you wouldn't buy the studio because you probably want a laptop. But I think you would go to the studio if you just wanted that bit more performance because it is quite a performance leap. But for 99% of people, the MacBook Pro is probably going to be just fine. Yeah, I wonder if it's that much of an improvement in performance. When I've watched the benchmarking of the Ultra over the Max, and I apologize for misspeaking before, it's not. It is an improvement, don't get me wrong, but is it worth that much more of an improvement? So a top-spec 16-inch MacBook Pro, 12-core CPU, 38-core GPU, 32 gigs of memory, 1 terabyte SSD, unconfigured, $3,499, which is not a small amount of money. What is the similar Mac Studio? Let me just do that. Sorry, exciting radio. So Mac Studio, and we want an Ultra chip in it. So an M2 Ultra, 24-core CPU, 60-core GPU, 32-core neural engine, $3,999. So there isn't actually that much of a difference in price, is there? No, but you do get a screen, obviously, with the laptop. That's probably the one difference. But I think you're right. Most people should buy the laptop like I am now I've got it shut mm. I've just plugged in the screen and my microphone and off I go and then I will pick it up and take it in the house later so I think there is a market for the studio it's not a big market but it means there's an increasingly smaller market for the Mac Pro mm. I think that is the problem I will be amazed if we see another Mac Pro after this yeah it's a shame I do, I do like the design of the case and everything but I can't see a case for it at all and it's so big it's large empty space I mean I wonder in the future would they actually make a taller studio that allows you to put some cards in maybe maybe that's the answer and it's it's that halfway house I think Thunderbolt has given us the ability to not worry about internal storage cards potentially and I've certainly been in that position for a long time and I think you have hmm. oh well I almost want to see RIP the, the Mac Pro because it feels like it it sadly does feel like it it's crazy. We all wanted the update and we got the update and we're all bitterly disappointed with what the update is. Yeah, I think the update didn't bring what we thought. At one point they were talking about having an extreme chip in it which would double the Ultra game, which would have been quite kind of cool. Maybe that day will come. Who knows? Maybe, but you look at all the stuff they're doing with the game porting toolkit at the moment and there's people running it on the Mac Pro, the M2 Mac Pro, and you don't get that much. All those GPUs aren't translating to games performance they're not really translating to particularly fast performance and other sort of high-end rendering things you know it's nvidia cuda engines if you're doing things like machine learning approaches and all the rest of it the gpus and the mac pro aren't in that sort of league what you want are lots of sequential rtx cards so it's good it's better it's better than what we've ever had before but i don't think it's seven grand better no there's too much of a gap i think if it was a thousand pounds more than the mac studio then that probably makes sense. That's more of a sensible computer. But to be £3,000 more, I don't think it makes sense anymore. £1,000, just the cost of the stand for your XDR Pro. Well, yeah, there is that. There is that. And I think it's telling they haven't updated this, the screen that comes with it either. So it does feel like this is a slightly dormant product now. I like the way you said the screen that comes with it. That doesn't come with it. That's another couple of grand on top. All right, sorry, apologies. The matching optional extra screen that you can buy. Talking of screen, shall we move on to the Samsung 5K review? Perfect. Tell us about the Samsung 5K. I watched this video. Actually, I quite enjoyed the video. But I was really disappointed with the screen. It just looked really cheap. It just didn't have the quality of the Apple one. It had some good specs and lots of imp- lots of ports and what looked like a great camera on the top. 
didn't work very well with the Intel Macs, which could be a factor for some people out there. But compared to the Apple Studio, for me, I just didn't like the aesthetic of it at all. Just yeah, thought it very cheap, and I am quite happy I've got what I've got, I think, to be fair. Looks better than the Dell, though. Definitely better than the Dell, but the build quality did. It, they're trying to hit a price point, which I get, but... And I think Apple are trying to hit a completely different price point. And maybe theirs is too excessive and too much aluminium. But it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, there were rumors this week that there might be a, a third Apple display coming that sort of maybe is a halfway house between them or even a slightly cheaper display. So off with all the desktops we've just talked about and all the laptops we've just talked about, I think it makes sense that Apple should try and make a quality cheaper, you know, with continuity camera. I'd rather your display didn't have an, a webcam in it at all. Just let people, you know, bang it on top. Doesn't necessarily need speakers either because people have got spare home pods lying around or something like that that they could potentially make use of. So I think there is a market for that panel just in a well-made housing, which the Samsung one isn't, and people would lap that up. If that was a thousand quid, that would be a no-brainer to me. I'd go and, I'd go and buy it. Fifteen hundred is too much psychologically because of the refresh rate in it. But I think there is something that could, could come out. If you go on the refurb, it's twelve fifty. Still too much. It's just just gone over the nine nine nines too much. Yeah, nine 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 ninety nine. I don't disagree. I think they do need to do a screen for the lower end of the market. Even if, in a way, they could do a twenty four inch screen, but they should be doing something to go with the cheaper Mac Mini. So you can buy an all Apple setup if that's what you want, but you don't have to spend fifteen hundred quid on the screen to put on a five hundred pound box. So I wouldn't disagree with that. I agree. Moving on, and in a surprise to no one who's been following this stuff, apparently USB-C AirPods Pro are coming. Are you shocked that these might be coming? No, I think all they're going to do is take the AirPods Pro 2 that you and I both have and make a USB-C case. And I kind of hope they do do that because I might be tempted to get the case and not have to replace my entire headphones. But they need to start doing it, and they're doing more firmware upgrades to the AirPods Pro, which they announced back at WWDC. So it would kind of make sense. So... Hopefully they will start getting to the USB-C world. I think if they launch a USB-C iPhone, they should be doing the accessories to go with. I agree. Keyboards and mice as well. This is an interesting one. I mean, there would have been a time I was like, great, I can just take one cable to charge my laptop, my iPad, my phone, whatever. But I do still wear an Apple Watch and I can charge my AirPods Pro off my Apple Watch charger. So I have no great desire to plug my AirPods Pro into a USB-C cable. But, but having said all that, I think all the accessories should make use of the same cable. So you can just take that one thing and not go, oh hell, I've still got a lightning cable on this mouse, which is still the most stupid charging mouse in the world. Yeah, it needs doing, not surprising, interesting. Yeah, I always wanted to make the watch work on your MagSafe because then I could just take a MagSafe puck with me for my phone, my AirPods, that all works. Can I have that for my Apple Watch, please? I agree, but you do get into the situation where you want to charge more than one thing at a time. So, for example, you know, if you've got a flight early the next morning and you've been wearing your watch and you've had your phone all day, you want them both on 100% when you get up and go. If you've only got one charger with you when you're away, it's not going to work. You, need, you do need a couple of chargers, I think. Yeah, that's fair. There's an interesting story in this as well, that apparently they may upgrade the software. You were talking about the firmware in the AirPods Pro 2 or 3, depending on how, these, how they badge these, to detect hearing difficulties. That's an interesting one. How would you do that? <laughs> well, we, we all know as we get older, our, the little 
hairs in our ears that help us detect noises change. So when you get over 40, there's certain high-pitched tones you can't hear anymore. So I suspect it's probably in that range where they play a bunch of tones at you and if you hear them or you struggle to differentiate them, maybe it changes the waveform or the, the EQ mix of what you're listening to. could warn you that maybe you've got higher than expected for your age average hearing loss or something. So there's something relatively simple could be done. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess if it was a test, I thought they were going to try and automatically do something. And I was like, well, how would that work? Yeah, and then the, th the other thought is that the next ones may have thermometers built on them to more accurately record your temperature as well. Mm, yeah, that would be interesting. It would. I, it's one of those I go back and forth on. I think, well, that is quite cool, I suppose, if they're accurate and you give them on. But if you're feeling unwell and lying in bed, your chances are you haven't got your headphones in. Yeah, true. But I guess, though, you would could put them on if you wanted to answer the question, have I got a high temperature? <laughs> it's just, there's a vision of you wrapped in Apple things. I've got my watch on for my oxygen saturations and my heart rate, and I've got my AirPods in my ears. So gonna, what are hospitals going to turn into if we're wrapping people in all this Apple gear? Everybody's going to be a doctor from home, aren't they? Absolutely. Just feed that into uh, chat GPT and it'll tell you what's wrong with you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, we're not going to have doctors because they're all going to be on strikes. So we're going to need something. Yeah, fair point. Shall we move on to the Pixel Fold? I think this is brilliant. So we talked last week about the, the rise of folding phones, and we talked about the new Motorola Razr, and we talked about the new Pixel Fold, and how it was getting better and all the rest of it. And the reports came in one day later about how the screens were beginning to break on the Pixel Fold. It's not good, is it? It's not surprising either, though. I, I remember the drama when the Samsung one came out, that people were peeling what they thought was a screen protector off, and it was breaking them almost immediately. So... First step into the market for Google, this was always going to happen, I think. Mm, hopefully they will resolve it because it did look a good device. And I am keen to see where this goes and I'm keen to see if Apple would do something with it. I am too. And I think this device, the Pixel Fold particularly, it's A, it's generation one, Samsung and the same problems. I think this has got an immediate advantage over the first generation Samsung one in that it actually folds flat when it's closed. Yep. The Samsung devices to this day still sit slightly open, as, as far as I'm aware. So matter can fall in between the screens, not matter the home device, matter as in bits of crisps or whatever rubbish you've got in your pocket. So the chances of getting a scratch in your screen is a problem. Equally, I wonder if that leaves the hinge slightly vulnerable, because that seems to be what some people are reporting, is that after a few days that the hinge, when you open it, and Marquez said this in his review as well, it's not 180 degrees split, it's like, you know, 178 degrees, 179, and you actually need to give it a push to fold it absolutely completely flat. And I wonder if that's breaking something inside the hinge, if you're getting that sort of level of resistance on day one. You probably shouldn't be pushing past that, really, because it's a different hinge to the Samsung devices. It's designed to stay open in various degrees as you, as you sort of use it. So I think it's interesting, and I'm with you. I think it's a great-looking device. Yeah, well, let's see what they come out with. Maybe, maybe it is an early production run, and it will all be fixed soon. $1,800 for one, though. It's got to hurt. I'm not as scared by the price as I once was because iPhones have been creeping up. So I can definitely we'll see Apple entering this market. Do you think we'll get a foldable iPhone this year? If they do, it'll be the iPhone Ultra. I think I've said that. I don't think so. I don't think there was enough smoke at WWDC to suggest it's coming. It would be a proper wow moment if they did it because there's been no hints of it. I don't think so. If they do... Maybe they have to announce it and give it a long lead time because otherwise it would, it would leak beforehand because so many people have to know about these things now. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think we're getting it this year. I don't. I personally, and this is what you keep commenting on when I send you the links to these devices. I don't think Apple can cope with the crease in the screen. I think it drives somebody in quality control wild that you can actually see a little bend on the screen. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, I wonder would they do it? Yeah, I don't know. We're gonna have to wait and see. We are, like you say, it would be a cool reveal if they put out, a, you know, whichever orientation it folded in folding iPhone. It would be cool, especially if they could keep it quiet. Moving on, I don't know if you've been following the furore in the Linux world at all. I have not. So I'll try and summarize this. You can read the article that's linked to from Ars Technica for more details. Basically, it goes down like this. There is an open source, well, there is a company called Red Hat. Red Hat is a very famous Linux company. Actually, starts here in Swansea. The guy that wrote the networking kernel for the original Linux, whose name I forget, it's Alan something wrote it as part of Swansea University Computer Society way back when to help Linux out, Linux out in the kernel. Early booting versions of Linux would all have thanks to such and such Swansea University Computer Society. Things have moved on since, since then. That company is now a bit of a behemoth in the enterprise world. If you want support for Red Hat open sort of Red Hat servers, you can go to Red Hat, you can pay them, and they will come along and endorse that. Red Hat is now actually owned by IBM, I think, Certainly, they're owned by one of the bigger corporate agencies in the world. And their Red Hat Enterprise Linux operating system is kind of a mainstay in this sort of stable server company pay-for-things world. All of this is to say that Red Hat Enterprise Linux is still Linux. So it's, it's mandated and maintained by the GPL, which is the copyright license that, or I should say copyleft, license that Linux runs under. So the idea is, if you make use of the code, you make modifications to the code, you put the code back out into the world for the rest of the world to make use of, build, do whatever you want. So Red Hat Enterprise Linux actually has been responsible for the development of another a number of other distributions of Linux that more or less make use of the same code. So Red Hat kind of want, have, have decided this has gone on too long. They're going to stop making their modifications to the open source code of Red Hat Red Hat Enterprise Linux as freely available. So you'll get up to your number of licenses. If you find that somebody else is knocking off the code inside Red Hat Enterprise Linux, they're going to stop people doing that and sort of come down on them, which they can kind of do. They're a company. They can stop people, anything sort of proprietary they've added to the code, but it's still open source code and they're meant to push that back to the mainstream of the distribution. So this has caused a world of storm inside of the Linux world that everybody is very upset the fact that Red Hat are... A, playing badly with the open source licenses may be illegal. There seems to be some doubt from what lawyers have said. But they're just not playing well, actually. And I'm right. I'll just back up what I said. IBM does own Red Hat. And this seems to be just big business. And back to our favorite word again, it's initiativation. You get your business users on board. You know, you get them paying a license. And then you start moving the goalposts that you want to keep those business users. You want to have them paying more. You don't want the people outside of the walls who aren't paying for it to get the free stuff that they always had. But actually, they helped you build the free stuff to get you to where you are now. So this hasn't gone well in the Linux world. There's lots of upset about it. And, you know, on both sides of the fence, Red Hat, as we're also seeing with Reddit and Twitter and all the other things are just saying, nope, we're doing it this way anyway. We're not listening to you. You're wrong. We're right. And that's pretty much seems to be that as far as their argument goes. And I just think it's the most fascinating fight in what was quite a peaceful world for quite a long time. I don't know where to start. I think, yes, I agree. It does seem to be quite a peaceful world, but it's like with everything though, isn't it? Corporations are getting bigger and they want to want to play with their ball on their own a lot more. 
Yeah, I, I, this is just dumb. <laughs> because let's face it, there's nothing in Red Hat Enterprise Linux. A, that you couldn't pay another vendor for. And there are other big Linux vendors like SUSE, who are a big German company who do a similar sort of thing. Actually, SUSE Linux is quite compatible with Red Hat Linux. They use the same package distribution format, RPM packages. So technically, you could go and pay another large company to go and put this problem for you. What that might do is make SUSE do what Red Hat have done and start moving things around and, and get going on board. But if you've got a halfway decent open source person in your organization, you could put something like uh, Debian on there which is entirely open source. A lot of these things are based on Ubuntu, for example, another big Linux distribution, is almost entirely based on Debian, which has been around a huge number of years. I mean, we must be into the 30 years now for the Debian operating system. Stable as anything, never falls over, very carefully maintained package system and all the rest of it. And with a little bit of effort, you could probably find somebody in a smaller shop to give you support for that. So I think they're on thin ice here with how much corporations are likely to put up with for something that they had a guaranteed level of support for, yes, but I think only within sort of fairly narrow parameters because my understanding of how Red Hat supported a lot of this stuff was just reinstall it. And frankly, anybody can just reinstall it. Yeah, that's true. And it, <laughs> it's a famed way of supporting things, isn't it? Just blow it away and start again. Yeah, which isn't helpful for lots of companies. And you think if you've had bad customer experiences before, one of these things might come to end of life and we'll go, all right, well, on the spare server we've got here, let's spin up this Debian thing or spin up Arch Linux or one of these other ones. I'm going to talk about something else in the main show as well that's just interesting. And find that you get 99.9% .9 of what you were after anyway. Yeah, it's true. And it does take a scenario like this, like we've seen with Twitter, like we've seen with Reddit for people to go, I'll just go over somewhere else and find a replacement service. Thank you very much. So it is a shame. It is a shame because they're a well they were a well regarded company for a long time. And it's just it's IBM maybe that's making them worse. You know, the, the Red Hat is a famous logo. Yeah. So interesting times, I think. And the react some of the reactions I've seen online have been quite fascinating, really. There's lots of people going, I don't trust any corporations with Linux anymore. I'm only gonna go with the community distributions. So SUSE, Ubuntu, Red Hat. All of them are go people are going, right, I'm just not going to install any of those Linux anymore. We'll go with Debian, we'll go with Arch, we'll go with Nixos, you know, anything that's not supported by a corporation. And because effectively under the skin, it's all the same thing anyway, just with slightly different packaging, there's no reason not to. Yeah, that's true. It's a lot easier to go out, isn't it? Then? It is. Anything else to say on this? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I don't know enough about Linux. I think it's fair to say. I'm going to talk about it again in a little bit. Next story, Motorola will sell you a little gizmo so you can have an app on your phone so you can do proper satellite messaging. So this isn't what Apple have done where you can do an emergency text message and it'll route first responders to a location. This will actually let you, if you're off the grid for $150, send messages via satellite, which is pretty damn cool. So does this use the satellite capability in the more recent iPhones then? It's got all this stuff built into the device itself. The phone is irregardless of it. It makes a Bluetooth connection to the phone, is my understanding, and then this maintains a satellite connection. Ah, okay. So I'm on my iPhone. I'm Bluetooth to this device, and the device is hooking up to the satellite. So I could use it on any iPhone, in essence. And I guess I've just got a little app where I can send a message to you, even though I'm in literally nowhere with zero cell signal. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. So you buy the device for $150, and then for $4.99 a month, you get 30 messages per month for 12 months. Up to whatever, 250 messages per year, whatever. However much you want to spend on it. So it's a facility if you're off the grid a lot to be able to at least stay in touch with people. 
And you know what? That doesn't seem too badly priced. Like if you're a hiker or something, that seems okay. Like as a, you know, an emergency fallback solution. I don't know. That that's, doesn't seem too scary to me. I think it's a great thing. My only hesitation would be, are Apple going to announce something similar for the iPhone 14s and above come September? They've kind of announced this, haven't they? You can do satellite messaging in a pinch. Is, is that all it's going to be, or, or do you think they're going to do a full-blown service? I don't see why you wouldn't do the next step of this. Yeah, you've done the hard bit, I guess. You've got the infrastructure in. Yeah, I don't know. Watch this space. You could see, you know, you've got an Apple Premium Plus Plus account that gives you 20 messages a month or something as well on top of it that will let you do that. I think it'd be a no-brainer for Apple to do that. Yeah, fair point. But in the meantime, I still think there's a, for not a lot of money, if you need this kind of functionality, I think it's a great thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. For If you're hiking a lot, I think it's a brilliant idea. Next story, also from Ars Technica. Ours have been knocking it out of the park this week. I've got to say, I found a lot of very interesting stories on ours this month. And this is a little story about the Brave browser, which I've talked about extensively before on this podcast, actually stopping websites port scanning your computer. I hadn't really thought about this before, that actually there's nothing to stop as soon as you log your browser onto a website, them just scanning to see what's open. And it seems like quite a lot do. Wow. I hadn't really thought about this either, to be fair. Yeah, it wouldn't take a very nefarious web server to do whatever the hell it wants, seeing what ports you've got open on your machine every time you visited. Again, it's part of the fingerprinting of you on the web, isn't it? It's not just the browser and the computer, but actually you've got port, I don't know, 21 open for FTP or something like that, or an 80 because you're running a web server somewhere. It's, it's That's really shady behavior when you start thinking about it. Yeah, agreed. You should never need to get anything off the local device. It shouldn't even be there. So I completely agree that Brave should do this, and so should the others. Yeah, so it, Apple with a privacy focus, why haven't they done this already? Yeah, fair point. Normally they are the leaders in this field, so yeah, disappointed they haven't. Yeah, well done, Brave. Not only are you quite a secure browser, but you're doing this kind of thing as well, and you've got your own search engine. I think that's laudable. That is good. Moving on, that didn't take as long as I thought it would. I thought we might have more to say, but I guess it's just shady, isn't it? It's just shady, though, isn't it? It's just wrong. There's no debate. There's no real discussion. Web browser shouldn't see anything on your local device. How has it got this far? That's your point. Apple should have done this ages ago. They should have. Moving on, a little bit of car talk for a change, but we won't do like ATP and have a, a car door closing noise. Instead, we'll just talk about this. There's been a whole bunch of stories in the last week about Tesla standard charging plug in the states becoming the standard on a number of cars rivian have changed to it i think lucid are thinking of changing to it now volvo has also announced in the states that they're going to change to tesla's charging plug i find this fascinating i find it fascinating but slightly annoying because i haven't got this plug on my car you don't need this plug on your car i know we're not in the states but shouldn't we have the same plug everywhere well this is the most annoying thing is in the in europe we did other than Nissan Leafs with their Chadimo connectors, everybody else had CCS connectors. Yep. Everybody. Tesla's included. You've got a CCS connector. I don't understand why Tesla have a standard in CCS that they support elsewhere in the world. They want to go back to their own NACS standard. And they're making other automakers do it. I am bamboozled. Mm, it's frustrating, isn't it? Like, Have we learned nothing? Just have one connector. Surely it's better for everybody. 
Yeah, I did see Gruber post on how this was terrific because the Teslas make the, have the best connector. It doesn't go wrong as as much as CCS does. I've never heard of a CCS connector going wrong. I've seen that's something I've experienced, and I've not heard a lot of people. And I know a lot of people with electric cars now, but I've not heard any complaints with them. No, and I've at least seen this plug because Tesla superchargers have the older standard because the, the, the sorry what has become this NAC standard because Tesla Model S's in the UK. The original ones came with the original Tesla standard, not the CCS. So when you visit a supercharger, both plugs are available inside of all of them. You know, it's just a smaller, thinner connector that delivers power. What's the big deal? It feels like BMX and VHS. Hey, all I can think is that this is Tesla trying to hold other automakers to ransom in one way, because they know how good their charging network is. And they want, now they're allowing other vehicles to use their charging. They're going, yeah, you can use our chargers if you have our plug. Yeah, or is there some licensing in there or anything? I don't know. It's an interesting one, though. I don't know. I mean, the article reckons that the CCS charging experience is far from pleasant. But again, I disagree. I haven't really had any problems. No, I, I don't think it's a I, I personally think it's a big issue, but I guess I've not used anything else. But should we just plug it in? I don't, yeah, I don't know what I mean, I'm missing here. That's why I think I'm struggling. Yeah, the plug is lighter and smaller than a CCS connector, and there are more than twice as many chargers doing it. Well, lighter and smaller, is that that big a deal? If, if you can plug it in and start charging it. And I think, I think CCS can charge at a faster rate. You know, some some of the Hyundais and, and Kias can charge at 350 kilowatts. Teslas can do that. Well, that's more interesting to me. If we, we, yeah, we, which one delivers the fastest charge? Because surely if we've learned anything, say with our phones, how do I get more power into it quicker, please? Less about the cable. So, yeah, for me, definitely about the, the power delivery. It just strikes me that the Americans want to do their own thing. North American charging standard. Yeah, that's an awful name as well. It's not terribly international, is it? It's really not. Nothing else to say on that. No, but I... I hope we don't have to change back here in the UK because I'll be annoyed I bought a tethered version of my home charger. I don't think we're going to change in Europe anytime soon. In fact, for a while in America, they were selling an adapter so you could charge your Tesla in a CCS one. Okay, that's good to know. Next story, have you put this in about how Elon Musk should be a genius? Yeah, I just thought it was quite good if you've seen it, but it's just a Mastodon link of somebody going... 12 steps how to be a genius it kind of just summarized the whole twitter debacle of elon buying it for 44 billion and then ultimately losing what they believe would be 44 billion i just thought it was a very neat succinct way of looking at the the life and death of twitter over the last circa 12 months i guess it would be now so do you want to run us through run us through the 12 points okay so this is how it goes so point one pay 44 billion for a site that's worth half of that so this was when Elon offered $44 billion up for Twitter and then obviously ended up buying it late last year. Sack everyone that knows how it works. We obviously, we've talked a lot about that. Release far-right far troll, troll army, which obviously has now allowed free speech apparently on the platform to a point. Turn genuine validation to a badge of, of idiocy. So this is where you've got to buy your badge so you're not actually being properly validated that it's you, but you're just paying to be validated. Kill most of the ad revenue is 0.5. And then inflate the API price to recoup some money that you've lost because you've killed the ad revenue, but now nobody's really using the API. Then everyone stops using the API, so they've started scraping the site. And then what Twitter did at the weekend then is they've massively limited how you interact with Twitter to stop all the scrapers, but now you've given a really bad experience to those that genuinely want to use it. So what they've done there is now when you log in 
sorry, when you go to Twitter, if you're not logged in, you can't see any tweets and you can only scroll and look at a certain number of tweets. So they've really handicapped it for the actual genuine user that wants to use the site. But surely your aim when you've got somebody on your site or your service is to keep them and keep them entertained. And the longer you keep them on there, the better. You, I, you don't want to be kicking them off. So that brings us back on then to the next point then. So point nine, services now are unusable. Point 10, remaining advertising value will, will do disappear obviously because you're not gonna have as many eyeballs on it 11 killer cornerstone of the internet and then point 12 was lose 44 billion dollars yeah it's pretty succinct i'll agree and it does run into our next story about you know you touched on it there the elon blaming the scraping of the website as being part of the problem but it seems that's not it. it it seems to be the problem they had at the weekend where he said if you, unless you're a Twitter Blue subscriber, you only get to see 600 posts a day. Or if you're an enterprise customer, you get to see whatever it was, 6,000 posts a day or something like that. And apparently a lot of this was Twitter DDoSing itself because it was checking to see how often people were logged in and whether they were logged in. And if they were logged in, then they could see it. So part of the requests API limit it was hitting was being caused by itself. There seems to be something related to them not playing, paying their cloud bills. And we know Elon has a habit of not paying the bills for a service, so maybe there was throttling issues around that, and, and who knows what else was going on. And then, to only allow embedded tweets to be seen by people that are logged in means that if you're a New York Times or something like that, and you were linking to one of Elon's tweets, you can't show that on your website anymore because the API won't let you do that because you're not logged in. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy that every web page you load with an embedded tweet is actually calling the API, which you allowed to do up until you changed the thing. So that's also part of the DDoS of yourself. What a comedy of errors. Yeah, it's just bonkers. And, and things like if I sent you a link to a tweet in messages, the preview won't work anymore because you're not logged in. And it, I don't know, it just seems very little notification about it. Knee-jerk reaction doesn't work very well and here we are and the company's struggling still and it's just driving people away surely you want to be driving more eyeballs to the site and having more people stay on it for longer so all seems very counterintuitive so i just included a couple of links just for a background on it one to the bbc and one to the verge but yeah comedy of errors and a bit disappointing and i've barely used twitter i must confess but i don't think what i've seen like with following Formula One, other companies find something suitable to replace it with, which is a bit disappointing. I think still there's still a lot of institutions on there, I guess, and it's going to take a while. It's really difficult, though, isn't it? Because when you, it was, it wasn't just a town square. It's where the world went to get notifications of events that were happening, and to make that major change to it, where everybody was so embedded, we'd go there to see about Michael Jackson dying, volcanoes erupting, horrible things going on in America with guns. Sorry if you're a big fan of guns in America. You know, there's all sorts of stuff there that you'd turn to Twitter for. And lots of agencies, the BBC, the New York Times, you know, various bots reporting the state of your roads, your weather, your emergencies, tornadoes, were very much embedded in being there. There isn't an alternative for that. Blue sky is coming along. But all you're doing, and I think people are beginning to realise this, is pushing all that power back into the hands of somebody else again. So it's still one individual can take it and throw it down the toilet. Mastodon is great, but the federated nature of it puts people off. And there was another wave of people into Mastodon when all this was going on at the weekend. But these new users don't seem to stick. I think it needs a certain level of 
technical acceptance to actually get through the barrier of what do you mean i've got to sign up to an instance and then mastodon's gonna have its own moment where, where the, the facebook federation thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago is going to happen with mastodon social and then all the other mastodonenses may defederate mastodon social because they don't want to talk to facebook so that's going to splinter up as well it seems to me elon has actually cost us our sort of planetary communication network in a sense where we did have a canonical place to go to for news and i think that's really sad i agree i think it is sad he took a really good service a good idea quite well thought of service and seemingly made a lot of bad decisions rather than actually grow the business make it more stable make it revenue generating it just seemed to handicap it every turn it's very bizarre it's very bizarre anyway enough about the sad stuff of that and we'll give reddit a pass this week we'll probably come back to that next week because it'll undoubtedly be another thing yeah um, i've not much on reddit other than obviously the deadline's passed and they did carry on with stopping everybody using their api and they wanted to pay and absorb exorbitant costs so doesn't sound that one i did just put one last link in here just about the apple card and i wonder if this is why we haven't seen the apple credit card roll out any further than the states because apparently goldman Goldman Sachs wants out. So they were Apple's partner for the banking element of the Apple card. They want to get out of it. So maybe that's why it's not come to other shores, which it's a shame because I always wanted one of these, but it never quite got here. Yeah, I think maybe we've got slightly better banking options in the UK anyway with Starling and Monzo and things like that. Maybe such things aren't as accessible in America. I don't know. You'll want it because it's an Apple thing. I get it. I have the same sort of reaction because it's an Apple and thing. And you get back on buying Apple gear. So. Which, you know, we do a reasonable amount of, it must be said. But, you know, you can also, you can put, there are alternative ways to save money. You've got quidcos and things like that as well. So I get it. Don't get me wrong. I, I do understand why you wanted one. I probably would have gone for one myself because I'm an Apple nerd. But yeah, falling apart with your banking partner isn't great. There were all these stories about six months ago about Apple actually becoming a bank more than a software company, and I just wonder about the timing of that. It's rumored that American Express may be sort of sniffing around here a little bit as well, but I just wonder if Apple underwrites it themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally the bank of Apple could become a thing. Well, who who thought there'd be a music, you know, thing, you know, back in the early days when we got into Apple, you know, they're they're not quite a record company yet, but you know, the days of iTunes and iTunes conference concerts and all the rest of it are definitely a thing. They've got their own Apple radio stations. Amazing. Apple TV. Apple TV. You know, fitness. They are good at eating their supply chain in essence. So, I yeah, I'd be surprised if they didn't do something in this space to own a bit more of it. I guess it depends what risk they want to bring in house. Yeah, fair. Any other news? No, I think this has for news into media. Media. So, I've watched the new Apple TV show with Idris Elba, Hijack. I watched the first two episodes at the weekend. Have you watched it? I watched both in one sitting, back to back. That's what we did as well. It's good, isn't it? I quite enjoyed it. I had some questions over some of the plot, but it seemed a little bit hand-wavy. But as you quite enjoyed it, and it was quite a good piece of entertainment, I thought interesting premise of what's going on and I like it when a story just unfolds like that you've got a guy getting on a plane and he's just taking one piece of jewelry on the plane with him and so what's going on here so yeah I thought it was good premise but there's obviously a hijack on a plane and then they ask everybody to give them their phones but they seem very calm about getting the phones off everybody so you can't communicate to the outside world they didn't really seem to check for other devices I mean how many people get on a plane these days with more than just a phone and you know what about people's watches and ipads and i don't know it just seemed very that that thread of the storyline wasn't very good 
Well, they took the switch off the kid. Come on. Yeah, but what about everything else in everybody's bags? Um, and then later on, he's using the internal game thing to talk to somebody else. And it was just like, should he be watching this guy if he's been a bit of a pain? So I just I just found a little bit of the plot a little bit iffy, but on the whole, really enjoyed it. No, I, I 100% agree with you. It's deeply silly in places, frankly, but Idris is very watchable. Ben Miles, the pilot character, is excellent in it as well. So good cast, as usual, shiny as Apple stuff is. Yeah, amazing picture. Uh, it was good to see Ben Miles in, actually. Didn't really know he was in it until I started watching it. I literally just popped it on because it popped up. And yeah, it, it's just some good entertainment, but a couple bits of the plot annoyed me because they could have just, just ironed some of those wrinkles, I think. Yeah, silly but watchable. That's yep. the way I'm going to... Easy watching. So yeah, I would recommend. Easy. Yeah, I'd agree with that. For me, Apple also finished Silo, which I've been strongly banging on about on this podcast. So we've had the 10th episode of that. Have you started it yet? I have not. Well, I'll try not to do spoilers then. I would just say they have managed to maintain mystery while answering a couple of questions. And I can't wait for season two. And I think they brought it to a reasonable place to end on. If you don't like cliffhangers, then this is a cliffhanger-ish but actually, it's a good resolution to the story they've been telling so far. So thoroughly enjoyed it. I think that's the key question. Was it a satisfying end? Yeah, I, I'm okay with it. If it never, if there wasn't a second season of it, I'd be okay with that ending, I think. Okay, well, that's good because sometimes I worry when there's season finale, is it going like, to get everything to where you want it? So that's good. It is on my list to watch. I, I think I was going to watch it and then I saw Hijack. I thought, oh, I'll try the new hotness and end up watching Two episodes of Hijack, so apologies. Fair enough. The other show that's come out, and I've, this is why my games playing hasn't been so good this week, is The Witcher dropped. I don't know if you've been watching The Witcher on Netflix, Henry Cavill. It's based on a series of books from Poland, I think the author was from. It's where this originates. It's a bit Lord of the Rings-ish, and there's some very famous computer games based on The Witcher. The Witcher 3 is one of the biggest computer games of all time. The studio that make that, CD Projekt Red, also made Cyberpunk 2077, which had a few bugs in it, but then so did The Witcher when it came out, so it's fine. If you can pick up The Witcher on your PlayStation or one of the other platforms, I would. It's a great game. But Henry Cavill was born to play this, play this role, even more so than Superman, frankly. He's terrific in it. They're about an hour long the episodes. They first season was unique in its sort of approach to storytelling you genuinely didn't know where you were in time as what was going on has some killer tunes season two was a bit more straightforward you knew where you were things are moving forward but it was well done and season three has kicked off with a bang and i'm loving having it back oh it's always satisfying when something comes back and you enjoy it it is and it's disappointing news coming and netflix have split this into two seasons like the first half of the season and the second half which i think is dropping in august or something like that they did the same thing with stranger things so i think we're only getting and i i might be making this up entirely four or six episodes in the first burst and then another four or six so i've done the first two for the next season of the witcher henry cavill is gone he's gone off to film something else and we're getting a hemsworth which is probably going to put me off watching any more of it not that i've got anything wrong with a hemsworth but it's not Henry Cavill, who is no Geralt of Rivia, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, always tricky when a character gets swapped out for somebody else. So it'll be yeah, interesting but, to see how that goes. But I would recommend, for those that haven't seen it, if you like a little bit of stupid fantasy fun. Actually, it's not stupid. It's quite well thought out fantasy fun with some really good special effects and quality acting. The Witcher is worth a watch. Probably the only thing worth watching on Netflix at the moment. Wow, that's a statement. I stand by it. 
Fair enough, fair enough. I'm just going to provide a quick Downton Abbey update. A, I've binged the whole of season two this week, and I'm partway through season three. And do you know what I've learned? It's a bit. What have you it's a bit like Ted Lasso, but a Lord of the House in the 1920s, because it just reminds me of some of the stories of morally doing the right thing and the lessons learned. It's just quite interesting to see it played out in a very different era to Ted Lasso, and with a much different backdrop. So I've actually quite enjoyed it now I've realised the parallels between the, the two TV shows. Well, if that's what you're getting out of it, then who am I to stop you? I'm glad you're enjoying it. And Maggie Smith is awesome in it, so fair enough. Her character is awesome because she is very prim and proper and has some amazing lines, to be fair. There's some bits of it are fantastically written. I, yeah, I will confess, right, well. though, the story is just a little obvious in places. So it's not like, oh, wow, we didn't see that coming. So they do signpost a lot very early on. Yeah, it's a good cast. It looks pretty. Fair enough. There you go. Games? Games. And uh, relatively quick games, I think. First story, because neither of us have played any games as far as I can make out. Probably just the usual threes and a little bit of Battlefield or something. Call of Duty. It's just stories about Microsoft to begin with. That apparently what forced Microsoft to buy Bethesda, which is the new hotness in games, is called Starfield that's coming soon is that they were just worried by what Sony was having in terms of exclusives for things like Deathloop coming to the platform first and all the rest of it that Microsoft didn't have any. So they rushed out and bought a studio as much as anything else. I think they wanted to buy Bungie as well, who Sony ended up buying. We talked about Marathon and, and Destiny a couple of weeks back. So there's a, a lot of words from Ars Technica. I said they were heading out of the park on this. But it is quite interesting seeing these stories, which are coming out as a part of this FTC, not FTC, yeah, the FTC, Microsoft and Competitions Markets Authority and Microsoft in the wake of what they've been trying to do with Games Pass and Call of Duty and, and buying Activision Blizzard. That all this stuff, like the cloud story we talked about at the top of the show, is beginning to come out sort of, of what's happening behind the scenes in the emails and everything. And it is really, you, you see them trying to centralize on gaming, get those big titles out there, get them under their banner and then not bring them to PlayStation. You can understand why Sony were so concerned about this. Yeah, no, it does make sense. And Bethesda was a cracking studio to purchase. They've got some amazing properties, haven't they? Yeah. And it leads nicely into the second story that every publisher dislikes Game Pass because it's destructive to value, according to the PlayStation boss. And you can see that, you know, and, and I'm going to use it for the second time in the show, the enchitification of this platform where you get all of these companies on board and you get all these publishers on board and then you've got people hooked to it because they do want their Call of Duty, they do want the next version of Microsoft Flight Simulator, they do want the next version of Starfield, and they've got their Xbox thin client and then you start pushing up the prices, and it's not ten ninety nine a month anymore. It's fifteen ninety nine a month. It's twenty nine ninety nine a month. But you're gonna pay it because you need you need that next hit of gaming on the quality gaming server that's going to be provided. And you can see very clearly why Sony would think that was a threat. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does make sense. Interesting. Sony haven't purchased any either, but all the Game Pass does, whilst it's a great service to the consumer, it sure is just devalues games. Because, oh, I won't buy the game for £50. I'll just buy 50 games for £10 a month. Well, I know for a fact that I talked about Atomic Heart, sort of the big new first-person shooter that was sort of set in a post-Russian world a couple of shows ago. Well, about 10 shows ago at this point. And I viewed it almost as disposable. I mean, that's a game I could have gone and spent 70 quid on. I installed it. I got bored within five minutes. I uninstalled it again. And if I'd paid more money for that game, 
maybe I'd have actually got beneath the surface and thoroughly enjoyed the game, as opposed to viewing it, well, it doesn't matter, it's just on Games Pass. And a large number of developers sweated blood, sweat, and tears over that very pretty game with very compelling acting and very nice graphics and all the rest of it. And it was devalued entirely for me because it's just a Games Pass game. Yeah, that is the problem, isn't it? It, it can very quickly... Games very quickly become cheap. Same with movies, you know. You wait wait a month and a movie will be probably half the cost it was on the day it came out. So we do live in a world where everybody wants to think a bit cheaper. But I guess that's it must work because everybody's paying the bills. But I think they're just underwriting it, aren't they? They're in, we talked about this before. They're in such worry with this console generation that this is the this is the move they felt they had to make. And you can see it from Microsoft because they're not just the Xbox company. They're also the server and the desktop company. So they want to have that sort of control over where that can go. Because ultimately you could see, well, you could pay Games Pass on PlayStation. makes no difference if you've got a browser. It's what they do on the iPhone, after all. You can't install that app on the iPhone. So... You just run it through your browser on your PlayStation. It doesn't matter if you buy a PlayStation. We are still actually getting the ongoing monthly revenue for this thing. Yeah, that's a fair point. So uh, it's interesting times. And, you know, in the article, the linked article, they say, actually, they've started raising the price of Xbox Games Pass anyway. So you can see the beginning of this. They get the publishers on board. Activision Blizzard has made one of the final pieces in the plan for them. And they've got millions of gamers hooked for a very long time. Surely they've got to do that, haven't they, though? Start putting the prices up. That's got to be the, the right thing if they're going to make Game Pass sustainable. Well, you would hope. I don't know. I mean, it's really difficult. I, You talk about the value Gran Turismo keeps giving you. You spend 70 quid on the game. You know, you go back to it most nights. You've run your little driving marathon. And it keeps giving you that. Do you think Polyphony Digital, who are the producers of that game, would still be pushing the effort in if it was a more or less disposable title on, on a Games Pass thing? No, I don't think so. And they've got a community as well, and there's online events. I'm, I'm not a big online gamer, so I haven't done any of that. But no, I'm very comfortable with the amount of money I've spent on it and the value I've got from it. But I've bought very few games full price because they just haven't been them coming out. Yeah, but, but the one you have, you spent an awful lot of time on because it's the one you wanted and you spent a lot of money. Whereas the two free PlayStation games you get a month, not so much. Yeah, and they are disposable in essence. Yeah, so I, I I can totally see the argument that it devalues gaming. And I, I feel like Sony's, as we talked about at the time when it came along, Sony's tiers weren't comparable to Games Pass because they, A, didn't have the games, B, didn't have the studios, and C, probably see this to a certain extent anyway. Make the real classics available for very little money or for part of your subscription and the odd thing but actually those triple a titles when they come out they want you to buy the next spider-man at 70 quid so you're actually going to get the value of that game yeah no you're, you're right yeah you're right it gets you in doesn't it and then like you say if they withhold the sequel you're then going to pay for it so yeah. maybe it's the long game Maybe it is. Anyway, speaking of packaging lots of games together in one service, beautiful link there, Apple Arcade are bringing a few more really rather good games to Apple Arcade over the next couple of months. Specifically for me, Slay the Spire, game of, favorite game of this podcast, maybe not threes, but close, will be part of Apple Arcade this month at some point, as will Stardew Valley and Ridiculous Fishing. What are your thoughts on this? I think this is great. The three solid games, aren't they? Even I've heard of these three. So, and Stardew Stardew Valley is going to be an amazing farm simulator, lots of longevity in it. You know, it's a big game to get for free. So I think it's fantastic. And it's great they keep adding more and more to Apple Arcade. So it is good. And I've seen it found quite a few games on there for my children to play. And I basically say, look, 
go to the Apple Arcade tab. If you want anything on there, you know, you can, I think they click get and then I have to approve it as on their parent, but you can have whatever you want because it's free. It's, it's, it seems to be really good, the arcade piece. Yeah, there's a couple of good games on there. Of course, nobody needs anything else when Slay the Spire Plus comes along because you won't need any other games. So, you know, they're just charging you a subscription for no reason beyond that point. It's just copying threes because threes is already on Apple Arcade. Well, you know, both both of our games of choice will be things on Apple Arcade. I agree with you on Stardew Valley. I know a couple of people that play it, and it's almost a life simulator for them. They can go and tune out, they can go and plant things and harvest them and, and live a life inside of the machine, which sometimes if you want half an hour's escapism is all any of us want from computer games. So I think it's a great alternative thing for people to bring. It's a well-known game. And then Ridiculous Fishing, I've got very good memories of. I'm aware of this game, but I've not played it, so I might have to give this a go when it comes out because it's probably the one of them I haven't had a go on. I am completely shocked. How could you not have played it? It's a Zach Gage game. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, which is odd because I've played a lot of Zach Gage games. For those listening, he also made the game Threes that I love and various other word games that I've played and chess. Not words that I play every day. Uh, Not words, yes. Yeah, not words. There's a pool game of his that's terrific as well, and there's Easy Sudoku or Learn Sudoku as well that he did. Yeah. He's he is just he's a talented guy. He's very clever at coming up with a mechanic and making it work, and then obviously working with somebody to code it and make it work on a on a platform. He's really good. Yeah, so I would say if you're not an Apple Arcade subscriber, this might tip you over the edge. And if you're not an Apple Arcade subscriber, you should maybe buy these games anyway because they're terrific. Yeah, fair point. They are some good games. Steam Deck sale. Yeah, so finally, the Steam Deck is up for sale. You sent me a link. I clicked on it. I thought, maybe. And I thought, oh, I'll get the big one. It's for, it's got £100 off. Done. And you can't buy any of them because they're all out of stock, which seems a bit of a rubbish time to have a sale if you can't let anybody buy it. But do you think there's probably a lot of people like you were on the edge of getting a Steam Deck anyway, and then the sale came and they bought them on the first day? I mean, you're about a week into the sale by the time you tried, you, you pulled the pin on it. Yeah, I didn't see it because I don't have Twitter anymore. Like, normally this was just flashed up on Twitter and I'd have been all over it, but didn't come up on Mastodon for me. So, yeah, I maybe I've missed it, but it seems a bit rubbish that they're still not taking any orders. But a bit disappointed, I think, because I feel like I'm going to miss this one. Well, it was resource-constrained for a long time. As we know, I had to wait a long time for mine to come. So the fact they had enough to have a sale at all, I'm quite impressed with, actually. So sorry you missed out. I'm amazed they did, because they were resource-constrained before the sale as well. They, they'd already stopped a few models from selling. So I'll keep an eye on it, but I'm not holding my breath. Fair enough. Main show. Let's do it. I'm, I aim to have the shortest main show ever, so I'll very quickly run through what I'm doing. So this is just continuing our thoughts on, on home upgrades and, and techie projects over the summer. So... What I talked about last week of upgrading my Proxmox server, I went ahead and did. I bought a two terabyte SSD, which put in my gaming PC, which freed up a one terabyte SSD for my Proxmox server, as well as another two terabyte SSD just to have a bit more storage in there, which meant I sort of shuffled things around. I upgraded my WireGuard VPN thing into that as well, and that works beautifully. It's nice and fast now. But while I was at it, a story came out from The Verge about Plex, which is the server software I run that streams media in the house. So DVDs that I've ripped, I'm able to access on this. On any TV, I can download them to an iPad before I travel. Unlike Chris, I have making use of my old collection rather than rebuying my entire thing again on, on, on Apple or Amazon or one of those services and buying the same thing that I've bought two or three times before. Anyway, I want to make use of what I had. So Plex gave me the ability to do that. 
Anyway, this story about Plex cutting 20% of its staff has made me worry that Plex is going to go away. I bought a Plex lifetime pass about 10 years ago. Cost me 150 quid then, which meant I would be on the beta path. I'd always, I, I wouldn't have any licensing constraints with it. And I get all those things I've already talked about, like being able to download shows to iPads and things. Plex is a good piece of software, although it's very server-based. The way that it runs, it sits in the server, and it will do what's called transcoding to your device. So it doesn't matter if you connect with a rubbish device, it will change the video to run best on that platform. So if you're sitting on an Apple 4K TV with a big fat uh, Ethernet connecting sticking out the back of it, it will stream you 4K content, presuming the content's in 4K, to that device because it knows it can handle it. If you try and watch it on your watch over a Wi-Fi connection, it'll, not that you can, but theoretically, it would resize the content to give you the best possible thing on your watch. So that's quite cool, but works well. But if they're going to go out of business, I'm going to struggle. I don't know what I'm going to do, so I went to look for alternatives, and I found a thing called Jellyfin, which is a terrible name, but actually gives you much of this stuff, and it is completely free and open source. So I fired up a Jellyfin media server instance on my Proxmox box, did an NFS connection, which is, if you're into network connections, as you get Samba connections and FTP connections. This is another means of accessing network stores from my Synology. Pointed it at that. It has TV database and movie database built in. Indexed all my content. I downloaded a free piece of software for Apple TV called SwiftFin. And now I've got lovely internet connections are in the house to my media server again. Ooh. Sounds like you've had a busy week. Well, I did that bit. I rebuilt my gaming PC while I was at it as well. So, yeah. Is rebuilding gaming PC something you have to do often these days? Well, just because I put a two, two terabyte SSD in it, that's all. And I'm asking for a friend, but is there any reason you didn't clone the hard drive onto it? Because I've got to do this for my, my parents of how do I swap the spinning disk for SSD? Can I just clone it A to B? Because I don't want to have to reset everything up again. Yeah, it's not hard to set things up again, though, these days. Even Windows activation is very easy these days. As, lo as long as you've not changed that much in the way of the hardware, you just click on a thing. Mm, okay, some thought required on it. I just can't face it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of cloning Windows drives for lots of reasons. I think Windows, but Windows in particular builds up lots of cruft over the years. And starting from scratch is definitely not a bad thing with Windows. Mac's less so. You can go from backup to backup to backup. But Windows, I think, is crufty. Okay. So, yeah, sorry. And I've, I've taken this off slightly. I agree with you, by the way. If it was for me, I would just rebuild it. But I'm scared. Anyway, so Jellyfin, then. You're, you're enjoying it? I'm enjoying it. works well. It doesn't do the same transcoding thing that Plex does. But being as I'm connecting to it pretty much all with fast devices, it hasn't been an issue for me. I'm, I'm quite impressed with it. It's worked well. The audio is good. You can do things like install plugins for subtitles and things. So if you've got a, 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 a more obscure thing, and a, a positive example of this is I had the original BBC Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy show from years ago. No subtitles came with that when I ripped the DVD many, many years ago. You can install this plugin, you can click on it, and it will go off to the internet and find subtitle files that will sit on that. My children, for some reason, watch everything with subtitles switched on. Don't ask me why, they just do. That's because mum and dad are talking over the top of it, I reckon. No, no, we sort of all splinter off into our different rooms to watch stuff anyway, so that's less of an issue. It's just, I think they're on their smartphones, and they like, just like to look up, see what's going on, and go back on their smartphones so they don't miss the TikTok video that's ongoing. Kids, are you worried, though, Jellyfin, whilst being a free app, will go away at some point? 
open source stuff doesn't really go away, does it? It just mutates into something else. Mm. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. The other thing it gives you that Plex never did very well is DLNA, which is the old media streaming standard. So, for example, our, our LG TV support DLNA, which is the Digital Living Something Alliance, I forget, with a network alliance possibly. And it is a standard for streaming media and music and films and things around your house. And it's just a tick of a box inside of it and you can potentially stream DLNA content around your, your house too. So if you have got a bit of media, this gives you that facility. The server I've provisioned for it, it's a virtual server, has got a 64 gig hard disk and four gigs of RAM. And that's it. It's enough to do it. Yeah, that's pretty small these days. It's not a lot considering I've got 64 gigs of RAM and now five terabytes of storage on the on the on the Proxmox server. So you know, wow, that's probably bigger than just, small companies have. Well, it's all just an old Intel i7 box. I, and if I haven't said it before, Proxmox is just the most amazing hypervisor software. It gives you the facility to move while running to back virtual machines up. If you've got a cluster of it, I don't have a cluster of it. I had to play with it to see how it worked but decided I didn't need it. You can actually move live running machines between various instances. You can do things like cloud in it, which will let you download. If you ever go to Linode or one of these virtual server provisioning companies, you can actually provision a virtual operating system, Linux operating system, in about 45 seconds and have it up and running with a user account without having to install anything just based on the latest cloud in it image. It's a really cool thing. So I can provision a server in about 30 seconds and have something like Jellyfin up and running in about a minute and a half. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I saw I was just having a look around Proxmox's website as you were talking. Yeah, it, uh, it's definitely a piece of software every generation by the looks of it. It's well, it's speaking of Debian, and I'm going to talk about Linux again in a minute. You know, it's based on Debian fundamentally for the for the before you get to the hypervisor and everything. So it's it's a very good thing, and you can do an awful lot with it. But you've I, I've got I've gone off topic slightly. Jellyfin, a bit of investigation on, seems to be working quite well for me. I will maybe report back on how it's going and whether I've sort of drifted back to Plex in the meantime. Yeah, I'd be curious because obviously Plex has got such a good name and he's a great bit of software. It'll be interesting to see where you end up. Yeah. Moving on, and just very, very briefly, as part of my sort of virtualization and everything that's going on, as part of my gaming PC update, I dual boot Linux on my gaming PC just because I like to keep my hand in with Linux. As discussed before, there's a lot of flavors of Linux, you know, Debian's and Fedora's and Susie's and all the rest of it. But as I was sort of doing a bit of investigation, I came across one that is actually old, but I'd never heard of before called NixOS or NixOS. And the way you manage packages and software on it is just, it's fascinating. It's slightly nerdy, but you know, if you're listening at this podcast, you may also be slightly nerdy. You get a base install of what I think is actually Arch Linux underneath the lowest level that gives you a very vanilla GNOME or Plasma KDE, and if this means nothing to you if you're not a Linux person, the various desktop environments, which act slightly differently, but go back to the dawn of time, as Chris will probably remember from computer science days, KDE and GNOME were sort of the best known desktop environments. Yes, that was, sorry, I was still clicking around their website as well and reading about Nix because I was looking at their package manager and the, the latest versions that's just come out. I do remember KDE and GNOME crumbs. That takes me back. I don't think, I, and I was thinking as you were talking, I ever really got into Linux like you. I think I flirted with it because we had to, and then never really did anything else with it, whereas I know you, you've obviously kept, kept up to speed with it. It's just useful skills for things like Docker and Proxmox and, and running web servers and services and stuff that I like tinkering with, really. But long story short, and I, I, this has got a point, 
When you install an Ubuntu or a Debian or something like that, you used to get into this thing called RPM hell or packaging hell. You'd think, I want to install this piece of software and it would go, I would install this, but it depends on that. And that depends on this. And this depends on that. And it used to be a real nightmare back in the day. If you did want to install a particular text editor, you'd be there trying to install 15 different packages to get to the thing that actually would let you install it. A lot of that's gone away with Debian and Ubuntu and Red Hat. You'd just go, Da, 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 install this from this and it would just resolve all those package dependencies for you and off you go. What NixOS brings to the party is it's got one sort of canonical configuration file for everything. And you just write the packages down into that that you want to install. So a new install, you wanted to have Steam because you want to do a bit of gaming. You want to do OBS because you want to record what's going on. You want to have Blender because you want to do a bit of video editing. You want to have Audacity because you want to do some audio editing. You literally just write Audacity, Steam, Blender, OBS into one part of the text file. And whenever you launch the machine, launch the machine, it just checks they're installed. If they're not installed, it goes off and gets them. If you've screwed up your configuration file, this configuration file, in the BIOS, when you boot the machine up for the first time, you can always return to a previous version of the operating system. It manages the packages. It's stable as anything. And of course, the other thing it does is if you back up that configuration file, if you install another Nexos machine as a virtual machine or a physical machine, all you need is that configuration file and you're going to have the same machine every single time, no matter what hardware you bring to it. You need to back up your home directory and sort of your personal content and files and folders, but you can be back in a good known environment as you're familiar with in minutes. That's quite, that's quite cool, especially what we're talking about with Windows just now, of how we configure it and get everything installed. That's quite a neat way of doing it, isn't it? Oh, that's under. It was interesting just looking on their website. So the latest version came out in May and they had 1,867 contributors, which is a vast number of people working on this and adding code in. So I thought it was really interesting. 36,000 commits since the previous release. So really being actively developed, which is quite good to see. It's super developed. And like I say, it's super stable as well. The fact you can always revert to what was a working state at any point it's 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 fantastically comforting to know you're not going to break something by tinkering. Yeah, no, that is good. And like I say, it seems to be frequently updated. So, yeah, very and impressive. The package manager itself, never mind the operating system, you can actually get to work, run on other versions of Linux or even on macOS if you t- if you tinker. I like that this one's called Stoat. It's the code name for this this latest release, and the previous one was Raccoon. Well, it's better than, I think, is it Lunar Lobsters, the current Ubuntu, I think? Oh, yeah, I have no idea. But um, no, it looks good. I should play around with more kit at times. I think that's the, it's the just bit nice. I've missed. It's nice to know. I mean, it's two extremes, isn't it? Mac OS, you turn it on and it just works pretty much. Linux, you need to tinker with until you get it right. So it's more like, you know, taking your car apart and building it from scratch again as to just walking into a BMW showroom and saying, give me that one, please. I want that one. I want that one? Yep. I think that does us for main show. Anything else to add? No, I'm, I haven't got much techie stuff going on at the moment. And we spoke a bit about mine last week, so it's a little quiet at my end. I, don't, I literally don't know where the week has gone, to be fair. And this week's worse because I'm going to be away at the end of the week. So, yeah, I'm not, not going to have as much time to catch up on everything. That's why I'm trying to get my downtown in now. You have bought the Raspberry Pi, though, for the project, yeah? I've got a Raspberry Pi, yeah. We've done that piece. And we've installed the OS and played with it, but need to motivate my son more. I was going to have a play with the Python and see if I can get him editing a game. I think that might spur him on, you know, even if he just starts off changing colours of the font or something, you know, where we all started. And then I might get him into it. 
Good. Okay. App of the week. Me talking again. Very short, though. I'm not 100% committed to this one yet. I just quite like the way it looks and feels. It's called Paste. Link to the app is in the show notes. It's a $15 a year subscription. You get two weeks free trial. They do offer to put a reminder in your calendar to when those two weeks will be up. So I may cancel it before the $15 actually comes out of my account. It's just a very fancy clipboard manager, but it's very well done. It's very pretty. It's quite nice when you go to paste, when you invoke the right keyboard shortcut, and when you go to paste the image or the clipboard or the bit of text or whatever it is in, it will populate the bottom of your screen with the last, well, depending on how wide your screen is, 10 to 15 clippings. It's quite nice to see them there, and you can use the keyboard to go through them. It's quite well done. I don't know that it's better than what Alfred gives me, frankly, as part of an integrated keyboard ma- clipboard manager, but... Every time I use one of these things, and I do like this, so I, I may report back, I just think, why isn't a decent clipboard manager built into macOS? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's a few things we're missing. I was thinking it today on my iPad. Why isn't there a quick way just to tile all the windows I've got? You know, why is that not built in, as you, as you were saying? So I'm surprised clipboard hasn't really done anything more than the basics. You know, here we are, and we can just copy and paste one thing built into the system. So I'm amazed nothing's changed on that. It's rubbish, and just as part of my Linux adventures, KDE has a very comprehensive clipboard manager just as default. Oh, okay. That is interesting. Um, yeah, like I say, surprised Apple haven't picked up on that. Thing of the week. Thing of the week. Now I've gone with a boring one this week, but I had to buy a case for my son's iPhone. He's about to get his first iPhone, and I ordered this. It's £20. He wanted something red, and I was like, oh, fair enough, and it's for an iPhone 12. I had also forgotten... I don't know if you remember this, but when you bought an iPhone 12, the Pro and the non-Pro could take the same case. Mm. Whereas that's all changed in more recent years, and you need very different cases for all the different camera bumps and button placement. But no, I bought this case, and like I say, it's £20. I thought, it's got to be a red on it, it's got protection, and it works with MagSafe, tick, tick, tick. So very happy with all that. And I did, picking up the iPhone 12, regular 12, just the 6.1-inch screen, it's so much lighter than my 14 Pro. It just... So it kind of makes me want to have a smaller phone again because the, the Pro is just so heavy. So I'm interested to see what they do with the weight of the phone this year. Yeah, I'm. I, when I was briefly toying with installing the beta on my old iPhone 11, it didn't have that massive weight that the camera bump brings to the Pro. And the Pro Max is even worse again than the standard Pro. It is a very unbalanced phone. And there is something nice in the lightness and the pocketability of a smaller phone. So no, I get it. And it's not just the camera, but it's just the general weight and the steel rails on it. It's just a heavy old phone. But anyway, there you go. That that was my brief thing of the week. A simple case from Otterbox, which I think is a good brand. And I've ordered some screen protectors too, because who knows what a 12-year-old is going to be like looking after their first device. Yeah, time will tell. It'll probably be fine for a week or two, and then they'll get careless. Yeah, let's see how it goes. And that's it. That's the end of the show. And if anybody would like to contact us... Rod is at g5maniac at mastodon.scott. I'm at underscore cjp at mastodon.social. And you can email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Talk to you next week, Chris. Cheers, Rod. Cheers, Rod.